electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Cramer has the morning off. We are putting Q3 to bed today. S&P's on track to snap a seven-month win streak. NASDAQ hanging on to a quarterly gain of just eight points. Uh, Powell yelling back on the hill. Congress, as expected, does look to avert a government shutdown tonight. Our roadmap begins with stocks looking to claw back some of September's losses as Powell and Yellen go to House Financial Services and inflation and supply chain pressures are front and center. Plus, the energy crunch challenge for the global economy, especially what's going on in Europe right now. By the way, China's manufacturing sector also, though, notching its worst month since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And why one top bank is telling investors that it is not recommending Facebook, Alphabet, Twitter and other well-known tech names. Chat, the markets here in uh, Jim's absence, we're lucky to have Mike uh, to sort of, I guess, put Q3 in some perspective. When we look back on this quarter, is it going to be about what the Delta variant did to activity here, supply chains overseas. Yeah, I think that's kind of the the main catalyst for this reset. I mean, I think the market did have a significant reset in the third quarter. Most of it happened in September. Uh, It feels like a multi-week shakeout of some themes. Uh, You know, where are we trading right now in the S&P 500, even though we're up for the quarter pretty comfortably? uh, You're going back to the first week of July in terms of when we first got to these levels uh, that we've traded this week. So it shows you that uh, essentially we've, we've kind of backfilled uh, a fair amount. I mean, 20 percent or rather half of all Nasdaq stocks are down 20 percent from a high. Uh, Half of all S&P stocks are down at least 10 percent. So we could talk about how we still haven't had the 5 percent pullback in the S&P 500, but a whole lot uh, of culling has happened underneath the surface. You've also got the big five uh, market cap names that are 25 percent of the S&P are on average down 7 percent from their high. So the rest of the market's kind of gathering itself. But I do think it's Delta uh, sparked a slowdown. The cyclical stocks completely accounted for that largely uh, since June. And, and now we're figuring out what's next. Do we have a seamless transition to a reacceleration or we got a little bit of a choppy earnings season? So will, will we be trading in the coming weeks on margin headlines on Q3 earnings or is it more about, oh, Delta's seemingly being taken care of, maybe Q4 resumes the acceleration. I think that the Delta rollover is, is, explains a little bit about what we've been seeing in yields, explains the fact that financials and cyclicals have firmed up a little bit. But in terms of catalyst, yeah, I think it's going to be third quarter earnings and what exactly it was and what did August look like, right? We, Bath & Beyond's miss. August is a glimpse because the retailers have that in their quarter, uh, you know, exactly what the impact was. What's interesting about Delta, though, is the, the, the worst of it in terms of caseloads and then the most dramatic declines were in parts of the country that didn't lock down. Right. So it, it's not as if in the southeast there were these outright restrictions. So I don't know what we're looking for in terms of reopening uh, effect there. Yeah. I mean, we, we'll talk about Bed Bath's uh, quarter. Of course, we heard Dom and they talked a lot about it on Squawk Box, but it is reflective of some of these very things we're talking yeah. about, supply chain and COVID impact. But back to the 
the 10-year. I mean, that rapid move up to the 1.5 area certainly seemed to have had an impact on overall equity valuations yeah. or wherever you want to, however you want to sort of measure it, Mike. Um, nothing says that we won't conceivably kind of move somewhat higher on that as we end the year. Right. And I do wonder, is that going to continue to keep pressure perhaps on, on multiples when it comes to tech names? That's completely the playbook. Um, it's been a high correlation between bond prices and big growth stocks for a while now. It's not that way throughout history. I feel like that's been the excuse for the extra little bit of valuation premium that was added to the FANG names was, well, real yields are really negative right now and you gotta grab for scarce, scarce cash flows at these big... That piece of it isn't the whole story with tech. So we've, you know, you've had the you've had those stocks kind of find their feet under them at some point without yields going back to the old lows, right? I mean, the market kind of ratchets itself and comes to a piece with each level of yields. Uh, speaking of rates and supply chain, I want to play a piece of sound from Powell yesterday talking about supply chain and come back and talk a bit about the curve. Here's what Powell said. It's also frustrating to see the, uh, you know, the bottlenecks and uh, supply chain uh, problems not getting better. In fact, at the margin, apparently getting a little bit worse. Uh, and that's what has, has uh, we see that continuing into next year, probably, and, and holding inflation up longer than, than we had thought. So that explains short-term rates. But is yeah. the seeming ceiling on longer-term rates a sign that the market thinks these issues will get worked out? Well... If it's a, a ceiling on rates might also be because it's a growth restraint, right? And ultimately, we're not going to go surging into boom times. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that have Powell kind of put this structural idea out there, that supply chain uh, issues might create this higher level of inflation for a while to come because Fed monetary policy doesn't really come to bear on that at all. So it's almost a way of saying, look, we don't want it. It wasn't in our, our forecast. But if it's higher inflation, what are we supposed to do about it? Kill the economy, you know, by, by ramping rates before the economy is ready, before full employment? They're not going to do that. So it's almost a little bit of an out uh, in terms of the Fed kind of going according to its taper plan and, and all the rest of it. But in terms of, you know, long-term yields, I mean, I just think it's been a reluctant rise all along the way, right? One and a half, there's a yield premium. It's been a global yield you know, yeah. rise. If you look at what's happened in Germany. It's true, although I do wonder about global growth overall. I mean, you know, what China contributes, what, 40% overall of the growth that's uh, happened in the world economy over the last... Incremental growth. Yeah, yeah incremental growth. It's not growing that fast. No, and, uh, and there are what... continued questions. Obviously, the manufacturing weakens, power cuts are threatening to impact more there. By the way, in Europe, the cost of natural gas, liquid, is gone up enormously. And overall, we know about the UK shortages when it comes to gasoline or petrol in terms of the truckers. There's some things going on here that could be worrisome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, JP Morgan last night, uh, the supply sh shocks uh, gathering steam globally represent another drag uh, during second half have led us to expect a near stall in the Chinese economy this quarter. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's well, there's your explanation on maybe why yields aren't going to fly uh, necessarily. I don't think that the long end of the curve was necessarily going to, to, to sort of start pricing in huge amounts of, of rate hikes anyway. I mean, I think the flattening effect has been pretty well established when the Fed tapers. That, that has been, you know, what's gone on. It's funny, you know, CarMax uh, missed uh, today, uh, 172 uh, misses by 18 cents. Comps were down. Uh, comps were up six. We were looking for seven. It reminded me of a theme of demand destruction, yeah. right? In in autos, right? The cars are expensive. Yes. You might you might wait, right? 
Yeah, if you can wait, sure. I, I would think so, although, you know, huge revenue beat. So it was like one of those situations where, you know, the oil refiners, when oil was going up to 100, I mean, yeah, the outright number is high in terms of what you're selling, but you're, you're paying too much to get the, the merchandise. And I, I think it'll be a fascinating third quarter earnings season because when FedEx reported, it was like, well, I guess we weren't ready for this. You know, the it, it, stock got blasted, even though it had already been weak. And then this week, Sherwin-Williams kind of shrugged some stuff off. Micron kind of shrugged off, uh, you know, some of the concerns out there in its report. So I think we're hyper-focused on these issues. Uh, earnings forecast for the third quarter have been trending lower. That's been a change from the past couple of quarters when we've just been up and away into the reporting season. So that's probably going to moderate expectations. But uh, I don't know that that means that beats mean higher stock uh, prices. Yeah. It's going to be a showdown. I know uh, Credit Suisse, Jonathan Golub has been yeah. really hot on don't underestimate the ability of companies to navigate sure. this. Uh, Nick Colas over at Datatrek and 30 plus years of covering U.S. equity markets. We can't think of a time when analysts have so seriously underestimated U.S. corporate earnings power in any given year. Yeah, right. In a given year. But that's the past three quarters. I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like that that goes on forever. Uh, so, we, yeah, you have to you have to see. And also the margin of the beat is coming from certain companies. Yes. And there is some question about margin overall. If these companies, given inflationary pressures and their underlying commodities that they're right. using, I think what I saw a stat today, 224 companies in the last three months during their earnings call talked about inflation. It's a record yeah. for whoever's keeping track of that statistic. I'm yeah. not sure, but nobody's ever, uh, that number has never been exceeded. So it does give you a sense as to what a lot of these companies at least are facing. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I was looking at Target, for example, and you see that stock, it's had a, this pretty consistent slide recently. It's like 10, 12% below its highs. And it seems like, oh, look, the market's giving you a chance, right, to, to maybe buy uh, a little bit cheaper into this, this leading name. And the feedback was that apparently it's become this viral meme that, like, the, the shelves are empty. Like, shortages at Target at retail are a thing now. And I'm not saying it's going to be going to be a thing for months or it's going to actually be material. But that's the storyline right now, is that the reason that you're, you're, you're kind of punishing these stocks is because we just don't know if they can navigate that. Uh, yeah. Look at the downgrade today of Kohl's over at B of A. They go to underperform, talking about lower receipts, yeah. which theoretically would help margins because you discount less, but they say the sales headwind is going to hurt, is going to more than offset that. And by the way, page one of the New York Times this morning is all about the Vietnam supply chain. Uh, we were there uh, back in June of 2019. To back then it was about China yes. and how much they could take of China's supply chains and tech because we knew that things were getting dicey regarding the Trump administration and trade. They're good at sewing close. They're very good at it. Uh, yeah. But the, but the fact that COVID has has rattled that economy, that I think the front page photo on the Times is just an empty street, and that's where you get issues like Nike's. And Nike, that's where it's come up for us, of course, is in Nike, which does source a good deal of its goods from there. And you can see, oh, there you are, Carl, walking <laughs> Those, through. What were they making there? Do you remember? That was, I think, they were doing some Under Armour, uh -huh. uh, maybe like some Calvin Klein. I think they did some Nike as well, um, and they they have it down. They got. Uh, decent distribution, but not the kind of distribution networks that you would need to, say, do semiconductors, right? right. No deep water port. Uh, yeah, there's some bit, just a bunch of... By the way, all the raw comes from China, wow. right? All right. the yarn, all the, all the thread, Chinese um, materials. We are going to continue to talk about these supply chain issues for some time. And again, we'll get to Bed Bath. You saw the decline in that stock, but they are also talking about those unprecedented supply chain challenges that have been impacting the industry pervasively 
uh, not to mention inflation. For now, though, uh, let's get to Leslie Picker. You know, there were a lot of well-known names in the investment world who weighed in on the state of the markets at yesterday's Delivering Alpha Virtual Summit. And Leslie's here to give us some of the highlights. Good morning, Leslie. Hey, good morning, David. Yeah, you all were just talking about on a micro level how companies are faring, but we heard a fair amount of skepticism on the macro level as well on the recent market run. Mary Erdos of JP Morgan noting the fact that the S&P 500 has gained 30% since last year's delivering alpha and mentioned that that is, quote, not normal. It has continued, and uh, the question is only time will tell how long uh, that will go. You know, markets, as we know, they move well in advance of where the world is going. Even growth investors, often known to be a bit more optimistic, expressed caution in yesterday's comments. Brad Gerstner, for example, of Altimeter, said it would be a healthy thing for the Nasdaq to contract 15 percent to get back to pre-COVID multiples for growth stocks. He cut his net long exposure almost in half, down to 50 percent this year from last year's levels of 90 percent. Chamath Palihapitiya said when it comes to the market, he is, quote, skittish and very worried about inflation, but said hyper growth areas are the way to play it. It's not as if disinflation or hyperinflation are permanent entities. These are, you know, it's in, it's in, it's, these are transient properties of a functioning economy. My point is, when we are back to normal, if we go through an inflationary period, again, you'll want the thing that was growing a lot, not the thing that was growing a little bit. And you'll want the thing that was generating a ton of cash because in a you know a rising rate environment that has very positive attributes that work in your favor. Software-focused private equity investor Orlando Bravo also said tech can benefit in times of inflation, noting that the quality of software companies in the markets today make it such that they can raise prices. He believed the market activity earlier this week, where rising yields spurred a sell-off in high-growth tech names, was, quote, temporary, uh, while noting that the big macro risk in his portfolio is really labor inflation. Guys. Uh, overall, um, for the quarter, Leslie, M&A, global M&A, $1.5 trillion. That's an all-time high. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think you see CEOs that have had some of this pent-up demand from last year where it was a little bit more challenging to do deals, at least in the first half of 2020. And so, therefore, they're looking at, you know, what's going on today, some of the big key areas, the Fed potentially, uh, you know, tapering and then down the road raising interest rates. It's a, a pretty ideal time given where valuations are uh, for deal making. It'll be interesting to see if that continues. Of course, we've seen what's happened with the SPAC boom and, and bust by many measures uh, and what that means for deal making. So there are certainly some headwinds in the future. I think CEOs are looking at now as being an opportune time to do to do deals. Uh, Leslie, uh, quite a time. That was a great alpha yesterday, too. Uh, a lot of good stuff out of delivering alpha. Leslie Picker. Uh, take a look at futures this morning again as we wrap up uh, the quarter and the month. Even though uh, the S&P is on track to snap that seven-month win streak, um, it's on track to maintain what is a sixth quarterly gain. A lot more squawk on the street from the NYSE straight ahead. Every day. 
thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. The Senate has reached a deal to avoid a government shutdown and the House in focus when it comes to a vote on the infrastructure bill. Elon Moy joins us now with the latest. Uh, where do we stand, Elon? Well, Mike, Democrats are facing a critical moment today for their agenda and their ability to unite their party and trillions of dollars in federal investment are on the line. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters last night that she still plans to bring that trillion dollar infrastructure bill to the floor today. But when asked if she has the votes to pass it, she replied, one hour at a time. Now, Pelosi had promised this vote to moderates in her party in exchange for their support in moving forward on the bigger $3.5 trillion social spending package. But now progressives are balking and threatening to tank the infrastructure bill if the bigger package doesn't pass too. Bottom line, neither bill has the votes to pass right now. And Democrats appear to be getting farther apart, not closer together. Take this statement from Senator Joe Manchin, the moderate from West Virginia. He put it out last night and it says, I cannot and will not support trillions in spending or an all or nothing approach that ignores the brutal fiscal reality our nation faces. Now, there is one bit of good news out of Washington today. The government will probably stay open. That's because the Senate will start voting this morning on a bill that would keep the government funded through December the 3rd. It's expected to pass with bipartisan support, then head over to the House, and then the president's desk before that deadline at midnight. So guys, hopefully at least one crisis will be taken off the table today. Back over to you. Yeah, Elon, it's David. Uh, you know, there was some Republican support, both in the Senate and the House, for the infrastructure bill when it, pa when it, when it passed. Um, why are those Republicans not being counted, or are they in the House that might actually support it and perhaps offset some of those no votes if you got them from progressives? Yeah, so two things there, David. First of all, Democrats want to show that they can do this on their own, that their caucus is united in support of this. And so they have the votes to pass this bill and don't have to rely on Republicans for that. They say Republicans are unreliable partners. The second thing here is that there are Republicans in the House who might support the infrastructure bill, but they don't want to be the first ones out of the gate. In other words, Democrats need to get to that majority before those Republicans will sign on board. So you might end up seeing an infrastructure bill 
bill pass with more than the 218 votes that they need to get it done. But Republicans aren't going to come on until the last minute. And so that's why there's so much onus on the Democrats to make sure their party's in line. Okay. Sounds like kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> they don't want to be the decisive vote. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You first. Like, yeah. Let's get Mikey. Mikey likes it. He'll, he'll, <laughs> yeah. he'll eat anything. Oh, you got him. All right. <laughs> uh, Elon, thanks. Uh, Elon Moy. One more look at futures here. A lot more to get to this morning, including this uh, deal between Merck and Acceleron. We'll talk about Malnopiravir. Uh, some uh, updates from the CEO on Squawk this morning. As we're off the early morning highs, VIX down a touch uh, just below 22. Don't go anywhere. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Uh, Bed Bath's going to be your big mover of the morning. Uh, shares are down uh, double digits, at least pre-market, on this uh, pretty bad report and guide. Uh, they do cite some slower traffic in the month of August, obviously higher freight costs for the fiscal Q3. EPS of uh, flatline to $0.05. Cents. Street looking for $0.28, cents, Mike. Yeah. Um, I mean, down 28% is a complete give-up trade. The stock had really held up better than you might otherwise have expected. A lot of the chain retailers had done so. And in fact, it, you know, if you looked at like the price to sales ratio, the valuation had gotten above where it had been in recent years. So in other words, some measure of top line comeback was, was to some degree priced in. Still a relatively heavily traded short. Still no, you know, I think there's a lot of two-sided uh, sentiment on this one that maybe they're not going to be able to kind of get it figured out uh, across the board. But this seems like, you know, pretty good. Uh, flush of a trade uh, to a stock that really had just been doing uh, not a whole lot. If we open at 16, I mean, that takes you back to uh, really, the beginning of this year, so it's not, or, or the end of last year, basically, in terms of. So it's. Price. A, I mean, we should point out it's a small company, it market cap-wise, yeah. two two plus billion, and it's going to be smaller today with that decline. Yeah. But its problems may be reflective of larger issues that we've been talking about for quite some time, and in fact, spent a good amount of time on today. Again, when you read the press release, and they talk about unprecedented supply chain challenges have been impacting the industry pervasively. And they do as well say steeper cost inflation escalating by month, so month to month, especially later in the quarter. Uh, and they were simply unable to offset that yeah. in, terms of, uh, in terms of raising prices and or helping with their own margins. So sales and gross margin were clearly below. And clearly no tailwind really from the kind of housing-related spend and, nest, you know, whatever they weren't able to capture. You know, when I say that it would trade it up to a, you know, higher-than-average price-to-sales ratio, it's amazing what these stocks trade at. It's, you know, we got up to, like, 0.4 times sales, uh, and now it's, you know, it's going to plunge back toward 0.2. So, we, effectively, they're already priced for no real growth long-term. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned earlier the, uh, the B of A downgrade of Kohl's today. They go to underperform 48 target, again, on, on this idea of uh, lower receipts and supply chain challenges. Got a downgrade of Starbucks uh, today. Atlantic goes to neutral 105 as uh, they cite David China and U.S. labor costs 
the only, I get, you know, that's a theme that's running through a lot of the calls the last few weeks. The one bright spot today, you might argue, is Wells on, H, uh, on HD, uh, Home Depot. They yeah. reiterate overweight. Uh, they actually increased their target five bucks to 365. They met with management. They say we're increasingly comfortable that the housing backdrop is still strong and they are going to be able to navigate the supply chain stuff and the inflation stuff. Right. And I mean, Home Depot, also a company that would be a payer of premium wages beforehand. You know, they may not be uh, necessarily as stressed in being able to find people uh, on that front and maybe not not necessarily as big a, uh, an input cost as some of the other retailers. By the way, claims up again. It's like the third time maybe since June we have seen a slight uptick in jobless claims as you have plants who have to shut down for either lack of parts or um, uh, COVID restrictions, who knows what. Uh, but it, it, it's definitely it's an old style of layoff in the yes. old days yes. where it was kind of cyclical season. Let's get the opening bell here on the CNBC Real-Time Exchange at the big board. It's automotive chip manufacturer Valens celebrating a listing via SPAC at the NASDAQ hair products maker Olaplex celebrating an IPO today. David, did you have a lot of thoughts on what we heard about SPACs yesterday from the likes of Chamath? I do. I do. Some of which I don't feel uh, might be appropriate for our air. No. Uh, listen, you know, he is one of the champions of SPACs. He has made an enormous amount of money uh, from being an early sponsor there. It certainly benefited from some of the early enthusiasm that we saw amongst retail for SPACs. And, of course, we saw so many different uh, people uh, bring their SPACs forward in terms of sponsorship. And we still have hundreds and hundreds of SPACs that are looking for potential deals. I've talked often, of course, about what I at least is the misalignment of incentives oftentimes, given that the sponsor can make money on a stock well into the single digits, whereas, of course, the person who's buying it at 10, whether they be an institution or a retail investor, uh, needs it to go up from that level. Redemptions continue to be very high. In fact, VLN, and no offense to them, they all seem like nice uh, people up there, and that's trading around seven something. Redemption level was 74%, actually lower than some we've seen. But again, back to this idea, you're talking about 74% of the shares being redeemed. The cash that's brought into the company is far less than had been originally anticipated. The pipe uh, if there is one, uh, they feel pressure, obviously, in part because they're funding a company that may end up being like underfunded yeah. in terms of its cash needs, therefore may have a dilutive equity offering in its future. Uh, that at least becomes a question. And again, I've gone back to the transparency on that. We're not getting all the information perhaps we need in a timely fashion in terms of redemptions. Uh, but these these deals keep getting approved, even if the stocks are trading well below 10. Yeah, it's a massive, like, six-month-long indigestion that the market's been going through with this uh, this huge load of deals that went through. What's also interesting is that it's happened alongside this whole idea of the concept-type stocks, where it's, you know, let me give you our five-year projection pitch deck, and we're going to price off this huge total addressable market. Those types of stocks have struggled. So even the the, the, the classic theme of a SPAC target, you know, is a little bit suspect right now. And I think, you know, I come away with it saying, you know, you've got $370 billion of equity issuance year to date in the first three quarters of this year. You're up 10% from last year, which was a busy year. Um, The market's absorbed a lot of that. Part of it because $700 billion of new net inflows into equities in the first, you know, nine months of the year. So it's it's been this very active push back and forth. I think it's a a net positive that the market's been able to allow SPACs to fall by the wayside largely. Um, But it's still this overhang because you have all these companies looking for deals. There's like a few hundred of them. 
that still need to find a target. I think it's still 400, yeah. roughly. Amazing. And if Jim were here, he'd say uh, the quality of the street to keep research, keep eyes on these companies is limited, oh, yeah. right? We don't have the bandwidth to absorb that many new companies with the same quality research. No, completely not. not a chance. No. I mean, as many of them fall kind of fall through the cracks industry-wise. And so, you look, I mean, I think it goes back to a time of where there was a retail kind of, let me buy the story type thing in the market back in, you know, 80s and 90s. And I, I think to some degree, we we have that energy back in the market. Although what's interesting is, and I'm, I was looking at these numbers this morning, the retail uh, traders have really become less active in terms of buying call options, that source of demand out there. It's coinciding with the market struggling a little bit here. And, uh, and, and you know, the S&P is spent most of the last two weeks like under its 50-day average. Before that, had not spent more than a day or two under there. So it seems as if there's a little bit of a flagging of that uh, of that bid, and that's maybe a slight character change in the market, even if the overall losses haven't been much, and it has been in the context of kind of a healthy cleanse. It's funny, I haven't looked back at our old friends, the meme stocks, in a little while, yeah. based on what you're talking about. I do see AMC shares, are. I had not noticed, they're down. I mean, they're still up. Yeah. 1,500 plus percent uh, year to date, but they are they have been down uh, lately. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was a $25 billion market value only a couple of weeks ago, if I recall. AMC down like 25% this month. Yeah, yeah. okay, I had not actually seen that. Yeah. However, uh, Lucid shares, I don't know what they're doing today. They had a nice day yesterday. LCID, of course, when they said they would begin deliveries, the stock is up yet again, 2% today. like to come back to that name, certainly, Mike, is yeah. one that has reflective still of, of hope. Um, uh, I mean, they're starting to start to roll off the assembly line, but, uh, you know, the the air, the air pure, they've got all sorts of great names for their various cars. Oh, it's 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 really I mean, you understand why people are taken with uh, with the story, with the product, with what it could be. Forty three billion dollar market value for Lucid. Yes. Ford's at 56. Correct. So that gives you the scale of like what you give credit for in terms of everything being on the come versus well, yeah, they maybe have EVs figured out at Ford to a large degree, but they're kind of going to be eating their own uh, legacy product line a little bit along the way. But, uh, you know, maybe it just means Ford's that, that much cheaper. We did, we did learn yesterday, Carl, that uh, Chamop has been a seller of Tesla, which was somewhat interesting. As has Kathy Wood yeah. Yeah. last couple of days. Uh, which uh, was a topic of, it didn't come up within the chat between Kerry Swisher and Elon Musk at Code. The closest thing uh, to the stock discussion was when he said, look, I've said the stock's too high yeah. and it didn't do anything. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do is what Elon said. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're definitely keeping an eye on on how Tesla is, uh, is moving. At this flows. point, Tesla is certainly more important to ARC funds than ARC funds sponsorship is to Tesla. Sure. I mean, ARC is like a half percent ownership of Tesla. It's not in the top 10. Larry Ellison owns three times as much as ARC does. So I feel like it's much more about how she chooses to wait. And it's been a pretty consistent 10, 12% wait across ARC funds. So it's not that that ARC is turning its back on Tesla. It's just that it needs other owners out there. It's big. It's too big. Yes. Um, Merck is leading the Dow. Uh, David, I don't know if you want to talk about the Acceleron deal or Malnupiravir, which apparently, according to the study they presented yesterday, does is active against variants and an EUA, uh, Smith said, still possible by year end. Yeah, I think we have a uh, uh, sound from him um, from this morning. The new CEO, by the way, at Merck, important to point out. Um, we'll do the Faber report now as well and talk about this Acceleron deal. We can also get back to uh, Molnupiravir. But uh, the Acceleron deal is one we'd anticipated. Of course, remember, Bloomberg reported the price but didn't have the buyer. Then the Journal reported the buyer but didn't have the price. 
Anyway, they both got it right eventually because it was 180. Uh, and Merck, of course, is buying Exceron. It's interesting, though, uh, the deal itself. And I want to get into a couple of things here. Uh, it, as you watch those shares retreating a bit because there had been perhaps some anticipation that it would be even uh, above $180. Uh, we're talking about $11.5 billion. And what, uh, you know, Soturicept is the, uh, so, yeah, I'm not even going to try, for pulmonary arterial hypertension is the key drug here. That other drug you're looking at, that actually the royalties for which uh, Bristol-Myers has, it was a Celgene uh, partnership from back. But remember, Bristol-Myers bought Celgene. But the uh, Sotatercept is actually the key drug here. And that came back to um, Acceleron in 2017 from Celgene. They essentially got the drug back. Celgene didn't want to develop it uh, at that point. And they have. Uh, and it was uh, in early 2020 when we got phase two data from that. And you can see if you look at a chart uh, of the stock that the stock did move up uh, at that point pretty dramatically. Um, but we're still waiting on phase three, and that's an important component here and one that's actually worth mentioning. This is the largest price ever paid for a company without what we would call pivotal phase three data, that $11.5 billion. Merck's taking a risk here. Now, is it a big risk? Well, the phase two data was very strong, but nonetheless, the, the pivotal phase three data, they're just really starting those trials. They're not going to actually get the answer to those trials till the end of uh, next year. Uh, and... The expectation is that you would not see a drug on the market until, let's call it 2023, and that's being pretty aggressive. So there is risk here for Merck. There's no doubt about it, and given the $11.5 billion. Now, there is potential multi-billion dollar market for this drug. It would compete against the likes of what J&J actually bought when they spent, what, $30 billion to buy Octillion uh, for the same, treating the same PAH, the same uh, basic disease. Now, there is also a hope over time, of course, you broaden usage, other areas of hypertension become into play, and sales therefore even accelerate beyond what they might be for PAH. So take a look at Merck shares responding quite positively. But interesting to note, 400 employees, you know, we talk so often about technology companies and their ability to obviously create a great deal of wealth. Well, this is part of tech in a way, isn't it? 400 employees, $11.5 billion. Not quite Pharmacet, which Gilead bought years ago for what was it, nine, ten billion, and only had about 90 employees. But it gives you a sense here in terms of the intellectual uh, uh, firepower at these companies and what you're paying for, really. And what Merck is paying for, and it's, it's an interesting move on their part. It's not the huge deal, but it's an important deal under new management. Remember, new CEO, new head of research at the company. And it will, they hope, diversify them away from the likes of Keytruda, right, which is their key cancer drug, 40% of sales almost, I think, from that one drug. It's going to come off patent. Not for years, but it will come off patent over some period of time. And so uh, it is an important move that Merck has made, made here, particularly given they're sort of known as, you know, the high science pharmaceutical company, the kind of typically have had, if it's not invented here, we're not interested in it, a bit of a move away from that. Uh, first statement, as I said, of this new team uh, at Merck. And guys, back to Molnupiravir. Uh, which we've talked a great deal about here for, frankly, 18 months now. They're getting closer to that oral antiviral that you would take if you actually get exposed and or show early symptoms of COVID, and that would essentially knock down the virus very quickly. Take a listen to the CEO. 
The primary completion date for our studies is the beginning of November. Uh, we do have potentially the opportunity for an interim look at the data before that. And, and with that, then the potential for potentially looking at an emergency use authorization before the end of the year. There it is, Carl. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we've been talking about this for a long time, so maybe they get that emergency use by the end of the year. It will be important. There was a period in time where we thought it actually would be on the market prior to vaccines yeah. and it'd be so important. Then it appeared, well, maybe we won't, it won't be as important, but of course with the Delta variant and with the possibility of other, unfortunately, other variants as well, this attacks them all. This doesn't affect the spike protein, so it, it has effect against all potential variants. Yeah. I did like how Gottlieb's language has gotten stronger. I think he, the, the yesterday said there's no question we are going to get a therapeutic. You got Moderna creating a new campus to do more mRNA. Yeah. And by the way, the reproductive rate is below one in 47 states and the District of Columbia, which is exactly uh, what you'd want to see uh, going into the fall. We hope it sticks. Uh, still to come this morning, the Fed chair and the Treasury secretary back on Capitol Hill testify about COVID and the economy, this time before House Financial Services. Got the Dow up 57 off of the opening highs and a look at the bond report. Take a look at how Treasuries are faring this morning. We did get the 10-year up to 155. Currently just a shade below that. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to Talk on the Street. Rick Santelli here live at CME HQ with breaking news. This, of course, is our September read on Chicago PMI. Expected out at 65.0. Coming in just a bit light at 64.7. 64.7. That's actually the lightest it's been since February when we were a bit under 60. The high water mark going all the way back to 1973, of course, was in May, and that was 75.2, just to give you an idea. But we really should put some perspective on it. Anything over 50 is expansion. So even though it's been much stronger by historical terms, it's still running pretty good. Squawk on the Street will return after these messages. Facebook's global head of safety heading to the Capitol Hill hot seat today. She'll soon testify at a Senate subcommittee hearing on mental health and social media. Julia Borston has more on what we can expect. Hi, Julia. Well, in just over half an hour, Facebook's global head of safety, Antigone Davis, will be testifying before the Senate Subcommittee on Consumer Protection. Now, this all comes after the Wall Street Journal's expose of Facebook's knowledge of the negative impact of Instagram on teens. And ahead of the hearing, Facebook published two research decks that the journal referenced, saying that it's not accurate to say that the research demonstrates that Instagram is toxic for teen girls, noting that in certain areas, teen girls say Instagram made them feel better. Now, the two decks have a total of 93 slides, each with lengthy annotations intending to give context around the controversial research. Now, one slide reports that one in five teens say Instagram makes them feel worse about themselves. But Facebook's annotation notes that the, quote, research was not intended and does not evaluate causal claims between Instagram's and health or well-being. So the committee's chair, Senator Richard Blumenthal, saying of today's event, quote, this hearing will examine the toxic effects of Facebook and Instagram on young people and others. Revelations about Facebook and others have raised profound questions about what can and should be done to protect people. And the committee's ranking member, Senator Marsha Blackburn, saying in a statement, quote, Mark Zuckerberg's guiding principle for Facebook is profit, going on to say the platform was fully aware that Facebook had serious and harmful 
issues. Then, of course, next week on Tuesday, the same Senate subcommittee will hold another hearing, this time with the Facebook whistleblower. Guys, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, yeah, speaking of which, Julia, uh, after all the coverage out of the journal, uh, Adam Mosseri on the Today Show talking Instagram kids, that 60 Minutes uh, teaser that they put up last night, although short, looks interesting. I wonder if we're going to come in here Monday morning, Julia, uh, with a little more intelligence on that. I think perhaps, though, I have to say, Carl, having read through these slides, what's most surprising to me about them is less the data in the slides and more the way it's annotated and the choices that Facebook is making to, in a lot of ways, discredit their own research. You know, they've talked a lot about wanting to understand the impact, saying that it's a good thing that they're doing all this research. And then the annotation, it discredits it. So it'll be Really fascinating to, to hear how Antigone Davis responds to questioning today, but then also to see who this whistleblower is. Yeah. Uh, well, watch that, Julia. Uh, interesting. Thank you. Although, uh, David, we've talked about the share price before, and yeah. 340 uh, last last few days looks like a pretty firm floor for now. It's it's funny because I had I do have this conversation with a number of uh, of asset managers uh, about it and the larger societal impact of Facebook and are you concerned? And many of them come back to yeah, you know, it's not great. It certainly hasn't been great for society, but stock's cheap. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where the conversation kind of well, ends. It's actually, not like it's not like it's expensive, and it, this has not shown up yet, Mike, in their in, a, in their ability to make money and or at least have margin. Now, by the way, there are people uh, investors seem more concerned about the iOS transition and what that's going to mean to the business than right. this. Right, exactly. It's the ad targeting. It's the effectiveness of the dollar spent uh, on advertising. Although. You know, that is where it's coming to bear on the stock price, which is the valuation. So it is now at a pretty appreciable discount to Alphabet, uh, yes. more so than it has been in the That's past. That's why they say it's and cheap. So on an outright basis, it's not falling apart. It's still like 11% below its high. Uh, but yes, it's, it's certainly not, uh, you know, changing the trend. It's just the, the earnings keep kind of growing uh, to offset that. And that, that's why it keeps looking cheap. I mean, you can strip out the cash they have. They don't really buy back a ton of stock. And it, you can make a case for why it's kind of steady value as opposed to, you know, you have to believe in, the, in this company's mission to buy the stock. Uh, yeah, that conversation will continue until, and I guess until we see some material impact on their business yeah. beyond, again, this Apple transition, which is of concern. Uh, but from, well, listen, we got Blackburn and Blumenthal on the same side on something. Maybe you should start to get worried. They don't typically agree too often. Uh, all right, let's move on. Junk debt sales, they are soaring this year. But is America's corporate bond binge about to go bust? Christina Partsinevelis joins us now. She's got a closer look at that. Christina. Well, yeah, there's no doubt corporate America is on a borrowing binge. You've got high-yield bonds, a.k.a. junk bonds, that we know carry a higher risk of default. But at least $382 billion have been issued by firms from Coinbase to Crocs this year alone. That's almost $46 billion more than 2019. And I use that number 2019 because it was pre-pandemic. But should investors be worried companies will run out of money? Our view for defaults and high yield is pretty benign over the short-term period, over the next, call it one to two years, um, which is part of why we're saying that, you know, um, that the outlook, despite there's some volatility and concerns out there, is still pretty decent. 
And we have default rates falling sharply since the pandemic era peak. And you can see it on the right side of your screen on this graph. Companies are rushing to take advantage of cheap rates and refinance their loans. There are some negative catalysts like, we know, the Fed tapering its bond program, higher inflation and a slowing economy. But experts seem to remain optimistic. Monetary policy looks ultra accommodative. It's near impossible to have a recession or to have a growth slowdown that's enough to worry corporate America. To invest in junk bonds, you need a broker. But here's some ETFs. We can look at HYG, JNK ticker, and USHY. These are examples of high yield bond ETFs. They've been up double digits since the pandemic lows, but below the S&P returns during that same exact time, even the yields on these ETFs are just all above 4%, which is pretty much triple the yield of the 10-year right now. And as we've seen with Evergrande, corporate debt can seem like a great investment until it's not. And then investors need to decide if these negative catalysts are just temporary headwinds or a warning that the debt binge bubble could be set to pop. Carl? Christina, thank you very much. Uh, we are on watch now for uh, the Fed chair and the Treasury secretary to testify in front of House Financial Services. We'll see if we get any incremental headlines on top of the ones we got earlier in the week. Interesting, the discussion, I think, lately has sort of pivoted around Powell himself and the degree to which uh, a second term might be clouded by either criticism from progressives or uh, the trading controversy regarding Kaplan Absolutely. and Rosa. I mean, the betting markets see it as even money at this point as to whether it gets renominated. What's fascinating is that um, it's hard to know what progressives might want more out of his monetary policy. Forget about, you know, the regulatory stuff that, that, that they're focusing on. Uh, you've never had uh, a Fed chair that has had such an expansive view of what full employment is, what the Fed is prepared to do in tolerating inflation to get there uh, and to put forward this new framework. So it's interesting that um, you know, it kind of gets villainized along certain fronts, but really what, do you, what would it mean uh, fundamentally in terms of a different approach to, to actual monetary policy? Not clear at all. Yeah. Uh, a lot of polling data being shared today uh, regarding the split between trust in the Fed between Democrats and Republicans. It's been a fissure for a while, but it's widening uh, since that trading controversy kind of blew up. Uh, so we're um, looking at some uh, early gains here. Dow's up 100. We're hanging on to 4380 on the S&P. We'll keep our eye on the House. Uh, Pelosi says she will have an infrastructure vote today. We're back in a moment. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 